Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Saturday, July the 16th, 2022. It is currently 5.04 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from Abilene, Texas. Well, I would like to believe that what I'm going to do is going to be so very popular and that I'm going to receive emails saying, thank you so very much. I've been so confused about this subject for my entire Christian life, and you, once and for all, cleared up all of the confusion. Now I understand you've absolutely changed my life. As much as I would like to believe that is going to happen, I'm not so naive to actually, I want to believe that, but I'm not naive to actually believe it because no no one is really going to like what I'm about to do. They're going to disagree strongly and a lot of people will be very upset, but we have to talk about it. All right. So here is where we are. It's Saturday. So we are fast approaching the end of our Bible study exercise where we have been studying the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. We've been stuttering, study, we've been stuttering. At sometimes it feels like I've been stuttering. We have been studying pneumatology, again, okay, the doctrine, the, the study of the Holy Spirit. We have been working on that, studying that. And at times it's become very frustrating, even with me. If you heard the last uh, broadcast episode uh, in this series, Bible study exercise on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, you heard me get very frustrated talking about, again, something that everyone claims the Holy Spirit does this, but they can't really articulate, wait, if the Holy Spirit's doing that, then why do we not, why, why do we clearly not see the reality of what everyone claims the Holy Spirit is doing? There is a disconnect somewhere. And whenever I point that out, people either question my faith or they question, they question everything. And I'm like, no, no, no. Just honestly look at the situation and explain it to me. But rarely are there any explanations coming. There's usually just arguing and attacking because people get very defensive on this subject. So we've spent a lot of time working on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. So what can I do now that we're getting close to the end? I thought we would do, well, a couple of special episodes. It's probably going to take more than one, but hopefully by midnight tomorrow, I can have this wrapped up. I don't want to go into Monday, but if I have to finish it up on Monday, I will, because this is going to take probably much longer than I anticipate. I think, oh, it'll be done in one episode, but I'm, I'm not foolish enough to believe that. So this may take a couple, but we're going to try to conclude this hopefully with something positive, all right? So here's what I want you to do. Right. If you've been taking notes and our entire Bible study exercise on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, just find a new page and just write down one word. Sanctification. Sanctification. Now, as soon as I say that word, some of you may go, well, wait a minute. I thought you're studying the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Oh, I am. But this word sanctification has a lot to do with what many people say the Holy Spirit is doing inside every believer right now as I speak. So write down the word sanctification, and I want you to think about this. I want you to ask, I want you to just think about how long have you been a Christian? How long have you been a Christian? One year? Five years? Ten years? Fifteen years? Twenty years? 25 years, all right? I want you to think about it. I want you to write down the word sanctification. I want you to think about how long you've been a Christian. Here we go. 
definition time. Sanctification. Or, in its verbal form, sanctify. So, sanctification, or in its verbal form, sanctify, literally means to set apart for special use or purpose. That is to make holy or sacred. Therefore, sanctification refers to the state or process of being set apart, made holy. Now, on one hand, we have been sanctified. On one hand, it can be, sanctification can be spoken of, of something that has already been completed in the past. When I became saved, I was set apart by God and made holy in my position because of the imputed righteousness. I was set apart for God's purpose, God's use. I was declared to be holy because of an imputed righteousness. So I have been completely sanctified in my position. We can also speak of sanctification, so that's the past tense. We can speak of sanctification in a future tense. I will be ultimately completely sanctified when I'm no longer in this body. I'm present with the Lord, and there's no more sin nature, no more pain, no more suffering, no more death. I am clearly set apart for him in heaven, 100% no sin nature. I'm there in his presence. So I have been sanctified. I will be sanctified. There's a past and there is a future. The past is done. The future is guaranteed. In between that, in between the fact that I have been sanctified and I will be sanctified, there is what we call the present tense being sanctified. We are being sanctified right now in our Christian life. We are being set apart. Now, this is not positionally, practically. We are being made more holy every day, practically. That is the way this is typically broken down. Sanctification in past tense, present tense, and future tense. Past, it's done. It was once for all, set apart, declared to be holy, all right? I will be sanctified. I'll be in his presence. No more sinful nature, glorified body, no more pain, no suffering, or death, all right? Those are, one's already been done, one will be done. But right now, in this present time, We talk about the fact that we are being sanctified. We're being set apart. Now, are you ready for this? This is important. And this connects it to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. What Christians typically teach is that this process of sanctification, it is occurring because of the work of the Holy Spirit inside of you. You're being sanctified by the work of the Holy Spirit in you. So I have to ask you a question. How long have you been saved? And so how much, how much have you experienced of true sanctification? Not just outward behavioral modification where you've changed some actions. I'm talking inside. True being set apart, becoming more godly, more holy, more holy in your desires, more godly in your desires. And then I have to ask a question. Why have you only come along that far? How come it seems that you haven't made more progress? So is it the work of the Holy Spirit? Is it a work I do? Is it a work we cooperate with? Is it a work I can stop? Or is it a work that God will override what I want? How does sanctification actually work? Because so many people say, this is the work of the Holy Spirit. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does it. But at the very same time, 
Many Christians will say, okay, sanctification is the work of the Holy Spirit. And then immediately go, however, but time out. We'll never reach spiritual perfection. So the Holy Spirit's doing it, but you can never get to perfection. All right, so why not? Others, they have a different approach. For example, sanctification is regularly equated with the Christian life. In Wesleyan theology, it can refer to a moment of entire sanctification in which one reaches a state of Christian perfection. So in Wesleyan theology, you can actually reach Christian perfection. You can actually reach it. Others are like, no, 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 no. But, but everyone will claim the Holy Spirit's doing it. The Holy Spirit's the one empowering it. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit. But it's, there seems to be, as much as we talk about it and everyone says amen to it, everyone says, yes, I agree with it. No one can ever really explain. So wait a minute. So the Holy Spirit, so you've got God, the eternal, all-powerful God inside of you trying to make you more holy and, and you've been saved 15 years and that's all there is to show for it? I mean, at this point, you think I should be, I mean, as long as I've been a Christian, I should be basically, you know, I don't know, perfect. So then what explains the lack of it? Well, they'll say, well, that's on you. That's on you. you so I can stop the work of God in me? These are, look, Asking these questions does not make you a skeptic, does not make you an atheist, does not make you an agnostic. I think it's good questions any reasonable person would have. And since we've been talking about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, I thought we would refer to the, the doctrine of sanctification. And this is all how it came about. About a couple of hours ago, I saw this. Are you Ready? Headline. Oh, I, this was published yesterday. So I just saw it a couple of hours ago. Sanctification is good news for the Christian. All right. Sanctification is good news. Did you know that it's good news? Is it good news? Well, everybody seems to think it is. And then I'm like, okay, I'm going to read the article. I'm like, wait, this is not an article. That, wait, this is a sermon from the TGCW21 conference. I'm, I'm saying together for the gospel, I don't know what the W stands for. I don't remember, okay? Uh, this is from the Gospel Coalition, um, TGCW21. They don't have it spelled out. At TGCW21, Ligon, Ligon, L-I-G-O-N, Duncan, Ligon Duncan taught from the book of Romans on the Holy Spirit's ongoing work in the Christian life to conform us into the image of Jesus. And I'm like, wait a minute. All right, so now we've got sanctification. We've got the Holy Spirit. This is perfect. As we conclude our study on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, we'll listen to his perspective, his theology. Now, I know the name, Ligon Duncan. That's L-I-G-O-N. That has, has to be. For some reason, I, I, I thought it was spelled different, but I'm going to go with Ligon Duncan. He spoke at this conference on, well, the, the Holy Spirit's ongoing work in the Christian life. And again, this is always, to me, to me, this should be a very just obvious, this should be a question every church and every Christian struggles with. Wait, so the Spirit is in me, working on me to make me more holy and more godly. 
at some point you would probably throw your hands up and get frustrated and go, well, why am I not better? Why, why, why do I continue to sin? How do we understand the ongoing sin that just is going to continue and continue and continue and continue and continue and continue and continue at the same time with supposedly God in me, supposedly working on me? I think, I think that's a reasonable question. So we're just going to see how he brings in the Holy Spirit. And then what we're going to listen for is, does he address any of the, uh, well, put it this way, what obvious questions come to your mind in hearing this? I just want to write down the, uh, I want you to write down, as soon as you hear him say something, write down the first question that comes to your mind. Because I think your questions are going to be like, well, wait a minute, how does that happen? Wait a minute, what does that mean? Wait a minute. Why do I continue to sin? I think you're going to have many of those questions. As, as he's speaking, just write down the question that comes to mind. Continue to listen as we, as we review this, analyze it, and critique it. And then we'll determine, oh, he answered all the questions. Or when you get to the end, are you like, well, it sounded really spiritual. Sounded really godly. But I don't have any answers. So is it going to turn out to be good news? Or is it going to be very frustrating news? We're about to find out together. So I don't know exactly when this sermon was preached. Somewhere in 2021, it was preached. It's found at thegospelcoalition.org. I'm, I'm, I'm guessing this is the TGC podcast, so you can subscribe to it wherever you get your podcast. And uh, well, I'm interested to hear this. Obviously, we're not going to, I mean, you know how these reviews work, right? You give me 15 minutes of audio, my review is five hours long. But I'm going to, I definitely am not going to let this go past an hour. We'll cut it off at an hour and we'll pick this up tomorrow and finish this. So, but let's see how far we can go. If you're listening live, throw your questions in the chat, or you can throw your thoughts, your observations, your questions, your review, your critique, your analysis, and you can email it to me at newsif at yahoo.com. But I thought this was the perfect time to do this since we're reaching our, the conclusion of our study on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, and we'll begin a new study starting Sunday night or Monday morning. So you'll be one of watching the, the series, Bible Study Exercise. Again, the easiest way to follow that series, Church One app, Church One, Church O-N-E, download the app. You'll have to search for Theology Central because that's a generic app. Church One, search for Theology Central, choose us, then you will become, that'll basically become the Theology Central app. Scroll down, look for the, the series Bible Study Exercise, and then you'll find, well, we're almost at 300 episodes just in that one series. So um, you'll you'll find out, well, somewhere tomorrow evening, tomorrow afternoon, tomorrow, somewhere tomorrow, what the new study is going to be. So you'll, you'll want to be listening. It's going to be exciting. I promise you. Right now, let's see if we can not get frustrated and we can learn a little bit exactly how the Holy Spirit is supposedly working in us and through us. And what does that mean? Here we go. Welcome to the Gospel Coalition podcast, equipping the next generation of believers, pastors, and church leaders to shape life and ministry around the gospel. Sorry, that was a little loud. Wasn't expecting it to be that loud because typically when I review audio, it's way lower. And remember, you're going, how did you not know? Remember the rule? Don't listen to it first because if I listen to it first, then the review is really just me doing a performance of my critiquing a sermon, which you've already heard. It just seems so mm, staged. I like it being real time because I don't know what's coming. It's like we're listening to it together in real time. To me, that's more fun.
Here we go. On today's episode, you'll hear a message from Ligon Duncan. This message was originally delivered at TGC's 2021 Women's Conference. Oh, I think now we can. So it is Ligon. So it is Ligon. So now I think we can understand. To get TGCW, Together for the Gospel Women's Conference. So it's TGCW21. This was the Women's Conference talking about, well, the doctrine of sanctification. But more, it seems the focus of this is the Holy Spirit role in that process. Now, I don't know if he's going to put what our role is, the Holy Spirit's role, who does what, how does it work, and why do we not reach sinless perfection? I mean, look, that I, that's just an obvious, look, I disagree with the Wesleyan idea that we can reach sinless perfection. But I call into question those who are like, we've got the power of God in us. We can say no to sin. We can fulfill the law. We can do all of this stuff. But then they, they're like, but however, we're never going to do it perfectly. Okay, well, that just is, is confusing to me as the other. So let's see if we get some kind of biblical perspective here. Here we go. Good afternoon, sisters. Are you filled? You've, you've heard a lot. You've received a lot. And I want to offer encouragement to you from an area that is perhaps unexpected. Our three messages in this post-conference focus on the finished work of Christ, the ongoing and continual work of the Holy Spirit, and the unchanging character of God. And we find rest in this restless world from all three of those glorious biblical realities. Now, generally, when people come to appreciate the doctrines of grace taught in the scriptures, they are encouraged by the truth of their justification but are sometimes discouraged by the state of their sanctification. Amen. I think everyone should be discouraged by the state of their sanctification. You see why I asked the question. I didn't know he was going to say that, but you see now why I was thinking. I was thinking, look, when it comes to sanctification, I've heard all of these sermons about how it works and the power of the Holy Spirit. Now you can say no to sin and you can overcome sin and you're more than a conqueror and la, 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 all of the stuff. And then you look around and you're like, defeat, sin, brokenness, church splits, divorce, adultery, pornography, fornication, boom, lust, greed, backbiting, gossip, slander, boom. And you just, and you're like, well, wait a minute here. Something is horribly wrong. Something is horribly wrong. Now, typically the go-to, because Christians love to do that, not saved, not saved, not, they're not saved, they're not saved, they're not saved. We just start throwing everyone under the proverbial not saved bus. We don't care how many people get run over by. You're not saved, you're not saved, you're not saved, you're not saved, you're not saved. But for some weird reason, we always convince ourselves that, that we're saved. We're always convinced that we have enough sanctification to prove that we're saved. Even though sometimes we're not really willing to look what's going on on the inside, we a lot of times judge our sanctification based off some external behavioral modification. We don't really want to get too serious about what's going on on the inside. But I believe any honest Christian at some point in their Christian life, I don't think you need to be saved that long. She'd go, what is going on here? I still sin and I sin and I sin and I got wrong thoughts and wrong desires. And what, what is wrong with me? That's a good question. 
So at least he's acknowledging many get discouraged by it. Now, I think what he's going to simply say is, you get discouraged by it, but I'm here to fix it all because I've got the answer and you'll never be discouraged again. Maybe he's got the answer, right? Maybe maybe, maybe you're just hearing too much of my cynicism and my skepticism, but I always, you know, yeah, we, we'll just see how this plays out. In other words, when you learn that you are counted righteous in Christ that you are accepted, forgiven, and pardoned, not for anything in you or anything that you have done, but only on the basis of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, which you have received by faith alone. So when you learn the glorious doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that is a very encouraging truth for the Christian life. But sometimes the state of our sanctification is a discouragement to us. We wish that we were more mature. We wish that we had grown more in grace. We wish that we were more godly. We're disappointed that we're struggling with certain besetting sins and that we've been praying against and working against and seeking to mortify those sins for days or months or years, and we find ourselves still battling with them. Okay, I do like the fact he's acknowledging that's the reality. You can be a Christian and struggle on and on year after year after year with certain sin. Well, I mean, put it this way. You're always going to be struggling with sin because you're never going to be sinless. So you're always going to be in a state of sinning. Let me state it again. You're always going to be in a perpetual state of sinning. I I can't stand when Christians say, well, no, 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 no. See, it's not perfection. It's the direction we go. And that, and that, and they almost speak of it as like, you know, you're going to sin less and less and less. I want to make it very clear. You will always be, in, or a lot of times people say, you won't be, it's not, a, it's not about uh, perfection. It's just you won't be committing a sin habitually. Whoa, 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 slow down. You are in a habitual state of sin. You are. You say, no, I'm not. Okay, I'll give you one command. Be ye holy as he is holy. Positionally, you're not in sin because you've been declared perfectly holy because of the imputed righteousness. In practice, you will never be as holy as God is holy. You will never fulfill that in any meaningful way. One little sin, one little, I mean, just the fact that you have the sinful nature in you, you are already perpetually never going to be as holy as God is holy because you have a sinful nature. Love the Lord that God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. I don't care what you tell me. You don't love God that way. You may think you do, but you don't. Love your neighbor as yourself. I'm going to tell you, you don't do that. I can just go on and on and on and on and on and on. Over and over and over, you're going to realize you are in a habitual, perpetual state of sin. So I'm at least, I, I like the fact that he's at least acknowledging it. But what's weird is Christians do strange things here, right? If you get saved, there are some who would say, okay, if you're saved, you can never have that problem or that desire. I, I, I'm just going to say it. I know it's going to create World War III, but I don't care. It has to be said. I get really bothered that there are those within the Christian life who've decided that they are now the spiritual police and they get to decide who's saved or not saved, but they will say something like this. If you were a homosexual 
lesbian, same-sex attraction, whatever the case may be, and you became saved, you, the minute you became saved, you will never struggle with same-sex attraction. That same-sex attraction will go away, and if it continues, you're not saved. That is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. And you know why? Well, if you're a homosexual and you get saved, supposedly all the same-sex desire just goes away. No more same-sex lust. No more, no more desire for a same-sex relationship. If that is true, then why isn't it true that when a heterosexual becomes saved, no more lust, no more desire for fornication, no more lustful thoughts, adulterous thoughts, it all goes away. It doesn't work that way. How come when a wife, when a woman becomes saved, she does, does, does automatically never has a, rebe- uh, she's always willing to be submissive to God and to her husband. Why is it when a man, when a man becomes saved, he doesn't immediately love his wife as Christ loves the church? Give me a break. Your sin nature is still active and present. So someone can be saved and struggle and struggle and struggle and struggle with a sin, with a desire, with a lust, with whatever, an attitude, an action, whatever the case may be. He's at least admitting it to some level. Now, I don't know how far he's willing to go with that because Christians get very uncomfortable saying, no, 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 you can't be saved and struggle with that. No, 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 you can't be. It's just amazing. And it's, isn't it funny? That it's always like, you can't struggle with that and be a Christian, but I can struggle with what I struggle with and be a Christian. Uh, you got to love that. You can't be a Christian, but I can. Wait, but you struggle. Yeah, but I don't struggle with what they struggle with. So your struggles are better than their struggles. It, it, it's such hypocrisy. But you see this very much ingrained in much of the evangelical world. And it's so unfortunate, because, but it just demonstrates how much confusion there is about sanctification. He's acknowledging the struggle continues. Now, here's the obvious question. Why is he going to answer that? Why do we keep struggling? Why do we keep sinning? Why is there a limit and even what, how much obedience we can have? Again, you're never going to be holy as God is holy. You're never going to love the way God tells you to love. You're probably never going to love your enemy the way he tells you to love your enemy. You're probably never going to forgive people the way he tells you to forgive. Even if you f- fulfill it for five minutes, probably five minutes later, you're, 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 you're guilty against it. So he's acknowledging. But the question is then, why do we still struggle? Let's see if he answers the question. Struggling to trust God. Struggling to be content. Struggling to love unloving and unlovable people in our lives. Struggling to yield our wills to God's will when God's will places a demand on our life. And and we're frustrated by our lack of progress in that godliness. But I want you to understand that the Holy Spirit's work in your life to conform you to the image of God is good news. That is, justification and sanctification are good news. And they are huge motivations, both of them, for the living of the Christian life. Now, Romans 6 to 8 
is speaking to the larger theme of how grace reigns in righteousness in the Christian life. You've already heard that word in the talk that you just heard from Kathleen. Grace reigns in righteousness is a very, very important Pauline theme. And Romans 6 to 8 basically expounds that theme. And Romans 8 especially discusses the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. And let me just ask you to open to Romans 8. I want to walk you through it in outline, and then we're going to read all the way down to chapter uh, chapter 8, verse 29, because the Word of God is more important than anything that I will say today. And everything that I say today, I will attempt to very clearly show you how it comes from the Word of God. But if I could outline the passage, it would be something like this. Paul is teaching you in Romans 8 about the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. And he means that to be an encouragement to you. He's not trying to beat you up. He's trying to encourage you in the Christian life. And by the way, in this, in this chapter, especially he is trying to encourage you as you face various kinds of suffering, weakness, and trial. So he is your ally in the fight that you live in the Christian life in this fallen world where you face suffering and weakness and trial. And he's bringing to bear the doctrine of the Holy Spirit at work in your life in order to encourage you. Okay, now, let's just make it very clear. Within the Christian framework, within the Christian theology, we make a claim. Well, we just have to acknowledge the claim we make because it's a very braggadocious claim. Even though we may not say it this way, we don't have to say it this way. This is what we're claiming, all right? I'm a Christian. I have God working in me. You're not a Christian. You don't. Now, that's a massive claim. Now, what we say is, I've got God working in me. You don't have God working in me. However, I can't be sinless. <laughs> wait, wait, I've got, you've got, I've got God working in me, but I can't be sinless. That, that, that is that uh, look when you, on one hand, when we tell everyone, because we may not walk around bragging about it, but our theology makes the claim. Look, you got, you work with someone. They're not a Christian. You're a Christian. You've got God in you. They don't have God in you. Well, I've worked with a lot of people, right? And my, when I worked in the military and all the years I worked in the medical world, I, I knew people who professed to be saved, went to church, everything, what about them would tell you that they're a Christian. They believed in Christ. And I worked with people who are not saved. Sometimes it was the unsaved people who were better employees, more trustworthy, could get things done, didn't cause problems, weren't involved in gossip and slander and causing issues in the office. The the three, uh, when I was put in charge of the uh, appointment line, when I was called in one day and I was told to be there at like six o'clock in the morning, which is way too early. And, and uh, the commander said, come with me. We walked into the appointment line. Now, the, the, there were three women who worked in the appointment line at the time. All claimed to be believers, all go to church. They would spend a lot of times, you'd walk into the appointment line if I needed something, because a lot of times I had to check with them with different, about different things because of my, my job and my position. And um, they would be in there doing Bible studies, which they were allowed to do. They were in there doing Bible studies. They would ask me theological questions. The problem was, 
They were causing so much trouble, so many problems. They were always in everyone's business. They were slandering, gossiping, stirring up trouble. They were, they were not showing love to anyone. They were judgmental, condemning of everyone. They were basically, they were hated, not for their Christianity, but for pretty much a lot of things that they did. Well, guess what? I was called and they were let go. They were fired on the spot. It was insane. It was crazy. And I was told, hey, when you take over, we got to, that stuff's got to stop. The, the, the appointment line cannot be the source of controversy and trouble. It can't be the place of gossip and slander and, and, be, and trying to make a point. Like, hey, a patient calls you and you're irritated because they called the appointment line because they get, can't get in touch with the OBGYN desk. So you just tell the patient, sorry, can't help you. No, you find a way to help that patient. So like just basic things that they should be doing. So th- there was lots of issues. Now, I don't know all the reality of what was true and not true. I know that there were definitely some issues. But the pro- point is, that's how they reviewed. They were the lost people. I mean, they were the saved people, and it was, I, I ended up with a team of people who I don't even think professed to be Christian, the original team, and guess what? None of those problems existed. Now, wait a minute. We're claiming God is inside us. We're claiming we, we've got God in us, and there's the person over there who doesn't have God in them. Well, then why wouldn't we, when we just, don't you see that that's, don't you see the problem with that claim? If I'm claiming God is in me, man, should be the most honest, hardworking, honest, loving. I should be the source of, of peace, a peacemaker, I, all these things. But we find that even within the, I mean, churches wouldn't be splitting all the time. The things would just, churches suing. I mean, all the Christians suing one another, all the different things that happen. But we have the Holy Spirit in us. But we always claim that the Holy Spirit's doing this work, doing this work, doing this work. I just don't think we ever have a, the willingness to be honest with the the problem with our claim with the reality that we see. So how do we explain that you have the Holy Spirit working in you, yet you can sin, 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 and sometimes we end up living our lives in certain ways that are worse off than the people without God. Now, some Christians say, that's absolutely impossible. You keep claiming that. You keep claiming that. At some point, you'll have to realize and acknowledge the truth of it probably in your own life. Let's see how he's going to answer some of these issues. And here's, here's sort of the, the steps of the argument, the flow of the chapter as he addresses that theme for daily Christian living in nine parts. So nine points as we work through the, uh, this, this chapter. By the way, the message will not be nine points, so just be... Be at ease. It's not a nine-point message. I'm just walking you through the chapter before we read it so you can see the flow of the argument. Okay, first, if you look at verses 1 to 4, Paul is telling you there how it is that we are able to grow in grace despite still having to deal with our own indwelling sin. Remember Romans 7? Romans 7, Paul addresses the indwelling sin in the life of the believer. So he comes right out of the blocks in Romans 8, verses 1 to 4, to tell you how you're able to grow in grace in spite of the reality of indwelling sin. Then second, look at verses 5 to 11. There, he is going to show you the difference between worldliness and godliness. 
One of the things he's going to say is that the Holy Spirit's going to grow you in godliness. And so he wants you to know how godliness and worldliness look. He wants you to be able to identify those things and see the difference between worldliness and godliness. And he actually has five points to explain worldliness and godliness to you in that section. Then in verses 12 to 17... He talks about how the Holy Spirit shows us that we are sons of God. In verses 18 to 25, fourth, he shows you how the Holy Spirit helps us in our present sufferings as they work for our future glory. So he immediately transitions from talking about us being the sons of God to equipping us for suffering because the sinless son of God suffered and we would assume that those of us who are united to him are going to experience suffering in the Christian life. How are we going to endure that? The apostle Paul explains in that fourth section. Then the fifth section of the chapter, verses 26 and 27, there he explains to you how the Holy Spirit intercedes for you. Then in verses 28 to 30, he explains how we are certain that God's promises will be fulfilled to us. In verses 31 and 32, he explains how much God is for us. In verses 33 and 34, he explains how secure in your justification you are. And this is actually a 10th point rather than the ninth point. So you got an extra bonus point here. How you can be more than conquerors, even if you feel like your sheep being led to the slaughter. That's verses 35 to 39. Now we're going to concentrate on verses 1 to 29. And really, this message is a one-point message, but I'm going to illustrate it in five parts in that section. So we're going to look at Romans 1, uh, 8, verses 1 to 29. Let's pray and ask for God's help and blessing. Heavenly Father, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The grass withers, the flowers, they fade and they fall, but your word stands and it stands forever. Sanctify us with truth. Your word is truth. All scripture is given by inspiration and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness that The man, the woman of God may be equipped for every good work. So speak, Lord, your servants listen. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This is God's word. Hear it in Romans 8, beginning in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That sounds familiar. Kathleen was just talking about something very similar. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order 
that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what the mind 
what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Amen. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth upon all our hearts. Sister. Okay, now, one of my criticisms sometimes. All right, so this is supposed to unpack the doctrine of sanctification. This is supposed to tell us how the Holy Spirit is working in us. And I've raised just very good and obvious questions that any just decent Bible student, anyone who's been saved for five minutes would ask in regards to these issues, right? About, well, how do we continue to sin? Why do we continue to sin? So what does it mean that we've got God in us and someone else doesn't have God in us, but how sometimes Christians don't seem any better than those who don't? Like, how do we understand all of this? Here's the, here's the, just the honest truth here. He's not going to even try to answer some of these difficulties because he has got basically less than 20 minutes of a sermon. He's got basically 20 minutes, maybe that, maybe a little less because typically by the, you go to the concluding prayer and your conclusion, you've got basically, he's got basically maybe 20 minutes of actual teaching time here. Maybe if that. He's, he's not even going to scratch the surface here on sanctification. He's not going to answer any of these questions. But let me just remind you of something, all right? Because I think it's important. In the end of Romans chapter 7, Paul acknowledges that the things he wants to do, he doesn't do, and the things he doesn't want to do, those are the things he does. Now, I know some people try to say Paul was referring there to him when he was lost. It just doesn't make any sense. He's referring to himself as a saved person. And then look what he says in verse 25. I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, so that with my mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Paul, in the end of chapter 7, acknowledges that with his flesh, he's going to continue to serve the law of sin. So whenever we talk about sanctification, we cannot deny the fact that we, look, in sanctification, whatever we think that means, whatever we try to claim that the Holy Spirit is doing, it's not going to destroy the fact that we're going to find ourselves doing the things we don't want to do and, and end up doing those. Or we're going to do the things we don't want to do and the things we want to do, we're going to fail to do. That's going to be the reality of the Christian life. I don't want to do this. I'm going to end up doing this. I don't, that, that's going to be the way it works. All right. In fact, Paul says, you see, uh, if we go back to see if I can find it, I can read it exactly. Uh, it says, uh, he goes, oh, here we go. Uh, for, uh, for that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. So what I want to do, I don't do. And that what I hate, I end up doing. That's the reality of the Christian life. Whatever you believe about sanctification, whatever you believe about the Holy Spirit's doing in you, the reality is the things you want to do, you won't do. And the things you don't want to do, those are the things you're going to do. That's just the reality of it. And so that you're going to end up with your mind serving the law of God, but with your flesh, the law of sin. That's a reality. Now, he says chapter 8 is sanctification. Here's the good news. And most people teach chapter 8 as being, no, no, you know, now you can fix it. The things you want to do, you can do. And the things you hate, you can stop doing. You can stop serving the law of sin. 
But the problem is chapter seven doesn't seem to be like, hey, I'm getting ready to give you the answer. But he does say this, in spite of the fact, I think this is important. This is, this is important. Even though you're going to find yourself someone who the things you want to do, you don't do, and the things you don't want to do, you're going to end up doing. And you're going to be someone who with your flesh is going to continue to serve the law of sin. Even because of that reality, there's good news. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Because of you being in Christ, there's no condemnation because in Christ, you have the imputed righteousness of Christ. In Christ, you walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. In Christ, in your position, you no longer walk after the flesh. In your position, you don't. In your practice, you still do. And if you deny that you do, you're a liar. So this can't be, hey, there's now no, a lot of people, the King James reads it almost this way. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. So a lot of people say, well, if you're truly saved, you no longer walked out after the flesh, you walk after the spirit. Everyone can claim that, but the problem is there's no one going to be saved because we still walk after the flesh Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Uh, Other translations state it this way. So it makes some sense. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. It's be, the reason there's no condemnation is because you've been set free from the law of sin and death. How have you been set free? Because you are in Christ, because of the imputed righteousness. So a lot of people like, chapter 8 gives you the answer. No, chapter 8 seems to be saying the answer is be of being in Christ. My position, my practice, I'm still going to sin. I'm still not going to do the things I want to do. I'm going to end up doing the things I hate to do. I'm going to still be serving the with my flesh the law of sin. That's going to be what's going to occur in practice. But you are there is no condemnation. But most people take this and say, no, the, this is the answer to that struggle. Well, if that's the answer to the struggle, 2,000 years of church history, there should be a lot of perfect Christians. So then we say it's the answer, but it's only a partial answer because you'll never be perfect. Well, what kind of answer is that? Hey, I'm struggling with sin. Here's the answer. You can have sanctification. Oh, good. I can. Yeah, but you won't be perfect. So it's only a partial answer. No, there's a complete answer in my position. So what do I, how do I understand the process of sanctification? Well, we've only got 10 minutes left and for our time. We'll see how far we can get and then stop because we'll just see if he even gives us an initial answer. The work of the spirit in you in the Christian life is good news. And the spirit's work in you is not only ongoing, it is relentless. It is continual. The spirit does not tire, falter, or fail even when we do. The spirit never gives up. The spirit is always at work in you. And his work. Okay, now look at the claim. The spirit, you give up, the spirit doesn't. You stop. The Spirit never stops. So 24 hours a day, seven days a week since you became saved, the Spirit is supposedly working in you to make you holy. Now, we can make those claims all day long. What does it look like? See, I was saved in 19, the late 1980s. 
It's 2022, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Since that day, the spirit's been working in me. Where should I be? Just, just logically, where, do, where should, if, shouldn't I not have already reached like spiritual perfection 10 times over? That, that's a reasonable question. is to bring about the fulfillment of the purposes of God, which were set in motion from before the foundation of the world. And so I want you to see five ways that the Spirit's work is characterized in this great passage. The first you'll see in verses 1 to 4. And here's what I want you to learn. Your justification by grace, that's verse 1, your justification by grace and your sanctification by God through the Spirit's work, that's verse 2, your justification by grace and your sanctification by God through the Spirit's work, both ground your sense of freedom in the Christian life. It is the Spirit who enables you to live in such a way as to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. Look, especially. Wow. According to this teaching, you get saved, you get the spirit. Now you have the ability. You are enabled to keep the righteous demands of the law. So now you can take the entire moral law and as a Christian, you can keep it. That claim right there is that you now have been given the ability to keep the entire righteous demands of the law. Well, one of the law demands is be holy as holy. So according to that, you can now be holy as God is holy. And not in your position, in your practice, you are enabled. You're now given the power to do it. This is, I've heard this teaching my whole Christian life. Well, if everyone's given the ability to keep the moral requirements of the law, then everyone should be perfect. Everyone should be holy. There should be no sin within Christianity. If you're given the power to do it, then you can do it. it th- th- I am so, oh, this drives me so crazy hearing this over and over and over. And You have the ability to keep them. So he saved you because you couldn't keep the law. Now that he saves you, you can keep the law. So why didn't he just say you're saved to keep the law? And if now, now you can, but if you don't, then you lose your salvation. Well, I mean, why don't we just go full blown Roman Catholicism, right? Hey, you're infused with righteousness. Now you have power. You can keep the law. You can obey. But if you go against it and you fall into a mortal sin, well, boom, you lose the state of grace. Why don't we just say we're saved by an infused righteousness so that we can keep the law? How that we were saved by an imputed righteousness because we can't keep the law. But no, we're saying, no, we're saved by an imputed righteousness, but now we're given the spirit who now gives me the power to keep the law. So then when you look at every Christian, when you look in the mirror, I want you to, you're looking at someone who supposedly has supernatural power to keep the law of God, the righteous demands of the law. That would have to be the moral law. Every command, love your enemy, turn the other cheek, love God perfectly, be ye holy. You can do it. How long you've been saved? How come you haven't done it yet? At verse four, the spirit's work in you does what? 
is in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. That is very good news. No, that's absolutely horrible news because no one does it. Now, I believe that by the spirit, I'm in Christ, right? I'm in Christ. Christ is in me. I'm united to Christ. And because I'm united to Christ in my position, guess what? I fulfill all the righteous deeds of the law because the perfect righteousness of Christ has been imputed to my account. But you want to say that all my righteous deeds, all the righteous demands of the law have been met in my imputed righteousness, but now I can actually do it in my physical life. And this is good news. Well, you're preaching at a conference. No one in that conference is doing it. And you know what? The one preaching, he's not done it. Because we never fulfill the righteous demands of the law in our practice. We, it would, listen, you know what it would require to meet the righteous demands of the law? It would be perfection. The Anything less than perfection is not meeting the requirements of the law. Those who live by the law must keep all points of the law. If you're guilty of one point of the law, you're guilty of all of it. He just says you now have the power to keep it, and that's good news. Hey, good news, everyone. You can now keep the law. All right, go. But, 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 but I keep sinning. I keep sinning. He's already acknowledged that we keep sinning. And then wait, if we keep sinning, how do you explain Romans 7? So what he's saying is Romans 7 is Paul like, man, I keep struggling. Oh, wait, wait. The good news is now I have the power never to struggle again. Then why is Paul saying he's still struggling? He didn't know the power. He didn't know the answer until chapter 8. In other words... God is more concerned about your sanctification than you are, and God's Spirit is at work in you to accomplish the fulfillment of God's law. By the way, this is very similar, isn't it, to what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. Would you try? So God is more worried about your sanctification than you are, and he's giving you the power to do it. So, I mean, if you've got God working 24-7, he never gives up, and he's more worried about it, you should be perfect a thousand times over. Turn with me there. In Philippians chapter 2, he says this. Look at verse 12. Therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works. We'll stop right there, and we'll wrap this up next time. You can contact me, newsif at yahoo.com newsif at yahoo.com. The reason I'm, the reason I'm ending this quickly is because we just uh, temporarily lost internet connection, but I still show that I'm live on the air. So I'm just going to bring this to an end. We can go right back and start when he quotes Philippians. So we're going to stop at uh, 18 minutes, 41 seconds, 1841. I'll back it up just a little and we'll wrap this up. But I just want you to hear that according to this teaching, The Holy Spirit in you now gives you the power to keep all the demands of the moral law. You now can keep all the law. Therefore, there's no way to get around it. If I can keep the moral law, the only way to keep the moral law would, I would have to keep all of it. So therefore, not only can there be sinless Christians, it should be the norm. 
And I've grown tired of hearing this claim when you got proof after proof after proof after proof for 2,000 years of Christians sinning, 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 sinning. How can you preach that knowing you're a sinner and you sin every single day? We'll finish this next time. All right. Thanks for listening. Email me your disagreement to newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. We'll finish this definitely tomorrow. Maybe we'll finish it later tonight. I doubt it. But if for some reason the internet's working okay, we'll finish it later tonight. All right. Newsif at yahoo.com. But yeah, now it looks like the internet's working fine, but we're almost at an hour anyway. And I said I was going to stop it at an hour. So either way, we need to stop it right now. We'll come back and finish this the next chance I get. But you can just ask yourself this question. If the Holy Spirit gives you the power to now meet all of the righteous demands of the law in your life practically, why haven't you done that ever after all of these years of being saved? All right, I'll just let you answer that question. I can't wait to see what you email me, newsif at yahoo.com. God bless.